Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, here we are at Lord's, waiting for the eclipse of the sun. Peter? Yes, the ground's in tip-top condition, and I think we can expect some first-rate eclipsing this morning, Brian. Well, we're certainly all looking forward to it very much up here. Jim? And to look at the eclipse of the sun through... Of the sun through? Yes, uh, to look at the eclipse of the sun through... I don't understand. Uh, to look through at the eclipse of the sun... What? I haven't finished. We have this oh, surely magnificent... Absolutely. Quite superb... Here, here. Quite agree. What? A uh, piece of smoked glass. Absolutely. Which must be fully... Oh, Ooh, easily. Must be. Absolutely. No question. Jolly God. Start again. Well, here we are at Lord's with this piece of smoked trout. Glass? Oh, please. No, no, no. no. Oh, oh, glass. Uh, waiting quite superbly for the eclipse of the sun-like object. And here, if I'm very much mistaken, comes the eclipse. Yes, you are very much mistaken. Here it comes. Peter? Yes, I can't see anyone stopping it now. No, it's all over by the shouting. The sands of time must surely be drawing to a close for this plucky solar... Oh! Oh! oh. Rain! Rain! rain. <laughs> well, what a shame. The rain is beginning to come down now here at Lord. Light's going too. Yeah, it's going really quite fast. By Jove, yes, it's getting quite murky up here now. You can hardly see a glass in front of your face. What a shame. Well, that's it from Lord's then, I'm afraid, but we'll be back here again the moment there's any sign of improvement. That, of course, is, it's almost cheating to begin your show with Monty Python, right? I mean, <laughs> I did nothing to earn that, you know, whatever laughs that uh, you gave that. But it is great. Uh, we are. So here's the bind in which we find ourselves, the conundrum uh, in which we find ourselves. The um, we're live here at one o'clock in the afternoon. Some of you, uh, some of you will be listening to us at 8 p.m. also on the radio. Others of you will elect the podcasting option, which means you could be listening to this show at any time, really, from now here in the afternoon, to the future, the far distant future, you could be enslaved to robots and listening to this. So, I, you know, but for those of you who are listening at one o'clock, we are going to begin the show with some last minute advice and, because I, I feel like there's still people who kind of don't get it. You know, like what you can do and what you can't do, what's safe, what's not safe, that kind of thing. So we feel like we just got to you know if you're listening at eight o'clock and you have bandages over your eyes, it was too late. I'm really sorry. Um, possibly your optic nerves will recover. Possibly they won't. But uh, so we're going to begin with a little bit of that. And then we're going to have a, um, a conversation about the nature of dissent right now. Wh I mean, what's what forms do dissent from the Trump administration take and which are the most meaningful forms? Some of the dissent comes from groups and individuals who were always opposed to Donald Trump and were opposed to things like Donald Trump before there was Donald Trump. Um, there are other people who are essentially saying, I've gone a little ways down the road with you, but I can't take another step. And then there are other people sort of saying, you were formerly welcome here, but you're not anymore. Uh, we're going to explore all of that. That will also include a conversation at the end of the show about the Kennedy Center honors, where we have a, a breach between the Kennedy Center, the honorees, and the president and first lady, such as 
has not occurred since 1978 when said honors were founded. All right. I think that's enough setting up here. So uh, we're about to talk to um, Nick Team, third-year computer science PhD student at the University of Maryland and Slate's 2017 American Association for the Advancement of Science Mass Media Fellow. It's a very impressive title. Uh, before we bring Nick aboard, let's hear what the coverage sounded like um, years ago. Uh, this would have been February 26, 1979. This is how Frank Reynolds covered it on ABC. So that's it, the last solar eclipse to be seen on this continent in this century. And as I said, not until August 21st, 2017, will another eclipse be visible from North America. That's 38 years from now. May the shadow of the moon fall in a world at peace. All right. So that was the last thing that I remember. And then I woke up today and it's it's 38 years later. And, and here we are. We're about to have uh, this other eclipse. So, Nick Team, I think you've had the same experience that I have, which is uh, despite all sorts of journalism and all sorts of formal warnings to people about not looking at the eclipse, there are still these people who go, Oh, well, I could probably look at it a little bit, right? It's just a partial eclipse. That's my impersonation of the person who thinks it's okay to do that. It's it's not okay. It's not safe to do that, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that because that has been a really common experience I've had. So just the other day I was having dinner with a couple friends, and they were suggesting, you know, maybe we could break the wine glasses and hold them over an open <laughs> flame to cover them in soot. Yeah. Um, which obviously, please, if anyone's listening, do not do that. Um, we also, another small story that happened too, I was getting driven to meet up with some other friends for dinner, and the driver mentioned that he would just look at the sun as he walked down the street, uh, which again, also, please do not do that. Right. It was his theory that if you're doing it kind of casually, you know, as opposed to standing really still staring at it, somehow or other that mitigates the effect or something. People have this all this kind of magical thinking about almost their their attitude when they're doing it. So maybe uh, as a scientist, you need to explain what is it that happens? I mean, since we know it's a bad idea to do it, why is it bad? Why is it scientifically a bad idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically what happens is this fancy name called solar retinopathy. Uh, what happens is ultraviolet light floods your retina, and it effectively burns the cells in your eyes, in the retina, with something like a sunburn. So if you can imagine the worst sunburn you've had on your hand and how much that hurt, apply that to the inside of your eye. Ah, so um, we do know that, uh, obviously, in the past, the, the appropriate eyewear was not available. And so that even somebody like, as you, you point out, Sir Isaac Newton um, made s some critical errors in terms of looking at an eclipse. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so the Newton story is actually one of my favorites. Um, Newton was the textbook mad scientist of his day. Um, in college, he stuck a needle in his eye, actually, to see what it would do to his vision. Um, but more relevant to the eclipse, he decided to view the eclipse through a mirror um, and let that be his only protection. If you want to know how bad that went for him, it blinded him for three days, and he saw after images of the sun for about three months afterwards. Um, I would add, by the way, to the rule of honor, although it's not 
eclipse specific, I don't think. But um, I attended a, uh, a, a university in New Haven uh, where one of the former presidents was a man named Timothy Dwight. Um, and he had terrible, terrible eye problems. And uh, it was discovered in his journals that he thought it was really good to stare at the sun. He would look at, as he put it, look for some length of time at the sun at midday. Uh, and then when his eyes started to go bad, he thought that would be a good way to heal them. The God's healing power would radiate out of the sun. So he looked at the sun even more, which I don't know. I mean, it's makes you wonder how he got to be president of that particular college. But so there are there are there are people doing this, but there also are and this always fascinates me the way that knowledge spreads unevenly. So you've got maybe scientists in the 18th century who don't necessarily get this or understand what the risks are, but you've also got scientists much more early De developing things like the pinhole cameras that we're talking about today, right? Uh, you mentioned an Egyptian scientist. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really important point to make, um, right? Because you're pointing out that Newton didn't really understand this stuff. Um, but in the early 11th century, around 1012, there was an Egyptian scientist by the name of uh, Ibn al-Haytham, and he wrote a book called The Book of Optics in which he described exactly, like literally exactly, the pinhole camera that people use today to see the eclipse. And I think that's an important point to make, right? Because we're so ready to give credit for a lot of the scientific discoveries to scientists from the West and from Europe in particular, right? I mean, Kepler came up with the name camera obscure, but he wasn't the one who created it. So I think it's really, really important to point out that it actually was this Egyptian scientist, Ibn al-Haytham, who came up with the idea in the first place. Um, by the way, and this you can do, turn this into a future Slate article, there's so many examples of that kind of thing. The one that was that I was spending some time over the past few days investigating for reasons that I would be hard-pressed to explain is scurvy. Like by 1500, there were people who understood what causes scurvy and how to avoid scurvy. But by 1912, there were still people who didn't understand what causes scurvy and how to avoid scurvy. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it sort of, you know, it really did sort of change the destiny of all kinds of people. So um, it, it, knowledge does not spread evenly. Maybe it does now that we're uh, digital. So last minute advice. All right. So um, in, in, in the space of two minutes, you could do real damage to yourself, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's actually a period of about 100 seconds can permanently affect your vision. And the sort of scary thing about it is that any amount of any partial eclipse will be able to do this damage to you. If you look at the sky for less than two minutes, you can end up with permanent damage to your eyes. So last minute advice, it's probably too late to get uh, solar eclipse glasses, unfortunately. Uh, but what you can do is make a pinhole camera. That's still an option. And there are hundreds of tutorials online. I know NASA provides one as well. That would be my recommendation. My recommendation would be to watch it on television. I'm sure television is going to do a great job of covering this eclipse. Um, but the other thing, uh, a piece of last minute advice would be, Nick, to inspect the glasses that you have bought quite carefully, right? Not all eclipse viewing glasses are created equal. That's absolutely right. Yeah, so there's actually a whole standard for it. The ISO releases a standard that basically tells you whether your glasses are safe. And there's a couple major check marks they need to hit. Uh, one of them is you want to look at the side of them and make sure that they say that they're ISO 12312-2 certified. That's super important. 
another big check mark is you want to look on the inside flap and make sure that the manufacturer is printed there as well. And you know, just as a last check, a really easy thing to do is to put your glasses on and look at a bright light source. If mm. you can see anything of your lamp, your Eclipse glasses aren't working. I would say if Eclipse is spelled incorrectly on the glasses, I, right away I would uh, I would have you know some warning signs here. So the good news for people who just didn't get it together today or or they're not in the right place is you don't have to wait as long this time, right? You know, you're not, not going to have to wait 38 years. Fortunately, yeah, the next one is coming in uh, 2024, so it's not actually that long a wait. Um, so, and in fact, uh, we're going to end there. First of all, we want to thank Nick Team, uh, who has been great. Uh, he is Slate's 2017 American Association for the Advancement of Science Mass Media Fellow. He'll be back with us next Monday to discuss scurvy. And we're going to go out with what we came in with. Well, sort of. We're going to listen once again to Frank Reynolds broadcasting for ABC News uh, on February 26, 1979. But we're updating him a tiny bit. So that's it, the last solar eclipse to be seen on this continent in this century. And as I said, not until April 8th, 2024, will another eclipse be visible from North America. That's seven years from now. May the shadow of the moon fall in a world at peace. Assuming our robot overlords even let us watch eclipses. They probably won't. Jerk robots. All right, we're back. Uh, we're going to, I should say, I, I should make this announcement every couple of weeks. So I decided that this summer I would not take a summer vacation. And one of the main reasons for not doing it was I thought <laughs> that he's going to fire Robert Mueller like this summer or something. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, and I thought I should be here. I should be here. So I like kept pushing my summer vacation back. I am finally taking a vacation in, towards the end of, of September, last couple of weeks in, in September. But I'm now officially resentful of anybody who's on vacation right now or who's having any fun at all. Um, so uh, with that in mind, uh, obviously this weekend was a weekend of more um, demonstrations of dissent, uh, especially in Boston. I want to talk a little bit with our two guests today about what dissent is right now, what the state of dissent is. There's the kind of dissent uh, that comes from people who have always opposed Donald Trump and have always opposed anybody re resembling Donald Trump. And then there's dissent also coming from people who might have, you know, gone a few steps down the road with Donald Trump, but can't go any further down the road. There are also, there's also dissent coming from the the kinds of elites uh, that Donald Trump has courted for most of his life. We'll talk about them in the final segment in particular when we uh, add a different guest and talk about the Kennedy Center honors. But uh, right now we're going to talk to Sarah Jaffe, freelance journalist, Nation Institute fellow and author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. Uh, and she is the co-host of Belabored. Uh, by also joining us from Maine, where I suspect he might be having a vacation, and therefore an object of resentment from me. Mark Silk, director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life and professor of religion in public life, has been with us many times before. Um, Sarah Jaffe, I'm going to start with you. We saw something happen in Charlottesville two weekends ago. We saw something happen in Boston, something that looked a bit larger uh, in, in Boston happen, happen on Saturday. 
were those the same two kinds of protests or was what happened in Boston a broader thing that maybe didn't uh, specifically necessarily involve people who were already, say, members of certain organizations? I mean, I would definitely say that the protest in Boston was much bigger because people saw what happened in Charlottesville and were motivated to act, right? There's nothing like a really horrifying moment of of violence to make people feel that they have to say something and do something that they might not have done otherwise. The folks in Charlottesville have been dealing with this all summer. So their city, because of the changing of the name of um, what had been General Lee Park to Emancipation Park, because of the debate over taking down the statue of General Lee in that park, um, white supremacists and white nationalist groups have been converging on Charlottesville all summer long. And so this was the third, fourth, maybe fifth time that people in Charlottesville have come out to um, counter protest this. And this one was by far the biggest, right? This is the, the rally that the right had been planning all summer and the people who had been planning counter-protests had been planning for all summer as well. And so, you know, that got attention that the earlier rally, the rally in July against the KKK um, had not gotten. And I think, you know, again, seeing the, the real sort of spectacular nature of the violence in Charlottesville then motivated people who are not consistently going to these kinds of protests to feel like they had to show up in someplace like Boston. Um, and, and Sarah, um, there, there is some kind of core coalition that you've written about mm-hmm. that, that yeah. seems to be forming, that they, they don't exactly all come out of exactly the same ideological tradition mm-hmm. or set of concerns. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the folks I talked to in Charlottesville, um, I talked to Laura Goldblatt, who is a a professor or a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Virginia. I talked to Lisa Wolfork, who is a member of Black Lives Matter Charlottesville. Um, There are clergy groups. There's a um, group called Congregate that basically is a, a coalition of clergy that have come together to oppose these. And there's a variety of different groups that are showing up for racial justice. I spoke to a woman from from showing up for racial justice or surge. And a lot of these organizations um, in Charlottesville had been sort of circling around and coming together and growing because of these repeated um, white supremacist incursions. Then there were groups like the Democratic Socialist of America, um, like the International Socialist Organization, leftist groups that see fighting the far right as part of what they do that, you know, both have a presence in Charlottesville and also people went to Charlottesville from elsewhere to stand beside people seeing that, you know, the right wing is going to be sending its people from all over the country. You know, the the man who drove his car into the crowd was from Ohio. And so the response to it also needed to be bigger than just in Charlottesville. Um, I want to get Mark Silka in on this. So, um, Mark, one of the things you do uh, is watch closely how religious leaders react to certain kinds of political events and political leaders. You've probably had even more to watch in in the case of Donald Trump. Um, But in, in some respects, President Trump hasn't entirely lost his evangelical base, even though there's a lot that a, a Christian could object to. Oh, no, well, I, you know, they may have lost a little bit if you look at some of the polls. Uh, you know, by the way, Colin, I would say um, eat your heart out. Maine is fabulous. <laughs> I deserve that. <laughs> but, but, you know, I figured I'd get on the phone today just to say that. Right. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that... Uh, uh, Trump's lost a little bit of support among evangelicals, but it's not major. And, you know, he's got this, uh, what I call the Council of Evangelical Advisors. Um, 
it's not clear exactly what they're called, if anything, but uh, uh, with the exception of A.R. Bernard, who's a megachurch pastor and notably uh, not white uh, from Brooklyn, um, they're all sticking with, uh, uh, with, with the president. Um, uh, you know, I think they see him as the leader of their new redesigned culture war uh, with immigration and uh, America first and stuff involved. And, and, and he loves them because he loves whoever loves him. But, you know, I want to talk more about that. So uh, one story that I saw today, Liberty University, that's the Jerry Falwell University, Liberty University graduates are calling on fellow alumni to take a stand by returning their diplomas. Uh, They're so upset by what they saw in Charlottesville. Uh, They are writing letters to Falwell's office and to the Board of Trustees. Uh, More than 260 people have joined a Facebook group called Return Your Diploma to Liberty University. Um, And they are suggesting that Liberty University needs to uh, answer some of this stuff or some of the stuff that's going uh, coming out of the White House or they should all revoke their ties. Now, this may be a small group, Mark, but, you know, every organization in America practically these days, whether it's religious or secular, has to wonder about the youngest part of their demographic, right? I mean, we just know that millennials and even the generation a little bit older than millennials tend to be a little bit more open, a little bit uh, more prepared to, to accept and tolerate people who are different. Um, and, and, you know, as Protestant organizations look at, at numbers, you know, you wonder whether sticking with Trump is really such a smart bet. Yeah, well, I think if you're the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, you know, if you're a big uh, denominational entity like that, um, you do have to worry about those folks. And 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 the SDC has been kind of trying to play different sides at the same time. Um, they don't go after Trump. Uh, you'll notice uh, Russell Moore, who's the head of their policy arm, has been very critical of white supremacy and, you know, even called out his own uh, um, his own folks in a in a um, op-ed in the Washington Post this past week, uh, but he didn't. He hasn't. He hasn't criticized the president. So I think they're walking a fine line. Jerry Falwell Jr. is is has been way out there uh, for Trump now. Um, you know, for a long time, and uh, you know whether he can still pack him into liberty, uh, even though some percentage of young evangelicals don't like it, uh, may not make that much difference to him. Um, Sarah, one of the groups that you look at a lot is labor. And obviously during the campaign, Donald Trump sent various kinds of signals, not all of them entirely consistent towards the American worker. But but one of the things that he seemed to be saying is, I'm going to bring jobs back, the kinds of jobs that labor used to cherish and want. I am going to cut Mexico and other competitors uh, out uh, of the picture. So, uh, how, I mean, is there sort of an equivalent dialogue to the one I was just having with Mark uh, about support yeah. among Christians? How's it going with labor? Yeah, I think there is a a similar sort of question here. I mean, um, Richard Trumka was one of the people who finally stepped down from Donald Trump's business council last week, and that's um, the president of the AFL-CIO. And there were some questions from people when they found out that he was on this thing in the first place, and then it took this long for him to, you know, step down, that that, – CEOs, I think it was the Merck CEO who first stepped down, were providing more of an example than the leadership of the labor movement. And the labor movement has a fraught history with 
race in this country, certainly with immigration. It's only been really the last decade or so that the mainstream labor institutions in this country have started to think of immigrant workers as part of the working class that they represent. And we can see that tension in the people who are willing to sort of support Trump or at least hear him out and think that a seat at the table on something like this business council was necessary. Um, the unions that have a base that is, um, well, let's, mostly that is less white, that is um, outside of these sort of industrial working class or the building trades have been more we're, uh, wary of Trump. They've stayed away. They um, are the ones that you know were very much in, in the Hillary Clinton camp or even the Bernie Sanders camp. And then there's, you know, there was a famous meeting with the building trades workers. And in that meeting, even though they are sort of come out of it going, yeah, he's on our side, he wouldn't even commit to upholding existing prevailing wage laws, which are something that the building trades really rely on to keep their members, you know, getting a decent wage. And so there's been a lot of this, you know, struggle around, you know, it's the old question of whether being having a seat at the table is better than, you know, alienating somebody who's powerful, whether it's the boss or whether it's Donald Trump, who, of course, you know, is the most famous boss in America. And and so, Mark, what she's saying does sound a little bit like what you were saying about maybe the, the largest group of influential evangelicals. You were saying, well, they still see him as somebody they can use to launch a movement. But I mean, isn't doesn't his market value that in that way decrease the more that he's publicly repudiated by all kinds of people? Well, you know, if I had a nickel, I'd put it on labor giving up on Trump sooner than yes, uh, the white evangelical <laughs> I agree with that one. establishment. I mean, you know, these guys see themselves uh, really over the past decade as having lost the culture war, at least as defined from the days of Jerry Falwell Jr.'s father. Um, maybe not so much on, on abortion, but gay rights, women's rights, you know, there's now transgender stuff. I mean, they're, they're not in good shape. And what, what Trump, it seems to me, has done is sort of redesigned the culture war to include, uh, in a way, back to the era of the civil rights movement when, uh, you know, uh, you could be for white people. And, uh, you know, the stuff that the culture war was sort of redesigned in the first place to get away from civil rights and, and accept the fact that, you know, there was a voting rights bill, there was a civil rights bill. Um, I think that this and and it's important to realize, you know, the degree to which which the president has has kind of signed on to some kind of religious liberty agenda, which allows these folks, um, you know, to resist uh, the incursions of the new culture. So I, I just think they see them. You know, this is the side that they're on. This is their war too. And unless you're a pretty moderate person, and and his advisors aren't. I think they're sticking with him. Now, the younger generation question, I think, which I didn't really answer, is, a, is, a, is an imp important one. And I think one of the real mistakes uh, that um, the Hillary Clinton did, uh, made, uh, you know, among many, uh, was to sort of adopt the NARAL position on abortion and the Hyde Amendment. Uh, when you had really the younger generation open to a lot of things, not so open to movement on abortion. Certainly on climate change, that's an area where uh, 
you know, the, Trump seems wildly out of touch with a, a younger generation, even among evangelicals. Yeah, um, I think that's right. They seem to get that. So, um, Sarah, you know, in his famous is now famous and, and who knows what to make of it interview, if that's the right word, uh, with Robert Kuttner, uh, Steve Bannon said that uh, as far as he's concerned, the best thing from his point of view that Democratic slash leftist op- opposition should, could do would be to continue to focus on identity politics, that that ultimately will shore up uh, the, the position that Bannon would like to shore up. I don't, what did you make of that statement? I mean, I think that black people and women and queer folks in this country would be very surprised to hear that the left has been very focused on identity politics. (laughs) (laughs) I think that uh, considering that we've been losing on all of these fronts for a while now, um, the fact that we talk about abortion, the fact that abortion rights have been steadily restricted around the country in not just in the Deep South, but in places like Ohio, um, we, yeah, the idea that there's been some intense focus on the rights of marginalized people is just ludicrous. Um, the thing is that Trump smells blood in the water. And so, for instance, when his health care bill was about to go down, he decided to go after trans people. And so he announces that he's going to kick transgender people out of the military because their health care is too expensive. Um, and so, you know, this, this idea that there is some like massive focus on quote unquote identity politics that therefore, you know, we should just turn away from and go focus on class. And like, I'm a labor writer. I write about class more than most of the people who talk about this stuff. But to understand that abortion is a material issue for women who need abortions, for people who need health care, these are very serious material economic issues. And the fact that they are seen as being somehow identity politics and the, the needs of white men are not is just, you know, it's ridiculous. It's not based in any actual material fact. Um, Mark, I want to also ask you about another group, a group that Brett Stevens wrote about over the weekend. Um, he wrote about conservative Jews, uh, some of whom did support Donald Trump. Um, it, it would seem to me that people with Nazi flags in Charlottesville with any Jewish group is an immediate deal breaker. Um, and, and Stevens, I thought, in a pretty good column, explored that question like I mean, and he and he also said, look, you knew you knew the whole time addressing his fellow conservative Jews. You knew who this was. I think he used the word smell or sniff. You knew what smell was coming off this guy. Um, And so I'm wondering about that coalition, too. How much strain can that particular alliance uh, stand? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would sort of uh, disengage, uh, you know, two two parts of, of the sort of conservative or Republican voting uh, Jewish community. Um, you know, one of the, the, are the sort of Stevens neocon folks, and they've never been aboard the good ship Trump um, and have been some of the most consistent and, you know, original and consistent and to this day uh, opponents of, uh, of Trump and Trumpism. And, um, and, and so, you know, in that sense, he was speaking for his uh, particular sub-community. Um, then you have the Orthodox. Um, I'm, I'm assuming Brett Stevens is not uh, Orthodox, but, um, but folks uh, who are um, in one part or another of the, of the Orthodox Jewish community. And there, I think, um, it's a more mixed picture. Uh, we did have the case of the, um, the sort of uh, I would, I, I guess you'd call them modern Orthodox, or you know, sort of on the middle uh, side of the political spectrum or the the, the religious spectrum, um, 
uh, Rabbi Lipstein, who uh, who criticized the president, uh, I guess you know, in the last week, and he was the one who 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 Converted presided Ivanka. over the conversion of of Ivanka. Um, so I think they're going to be in motion uh, for the uh, Haredim, for the the sort of uh, Chabad types who are um, looking out for their own communities above all, if I can put it that way. Um, uh, I I don't see, haven't seen any sign of them of them moving, and so as voting communities in Brooklyn say. Um, they seem to be more like evangelicals than anyone else. Hmm. Um, Sarah, uh, as you've covered the protest, I, I think one of the things that protest movements ultimately need and benefit from, or maybe this just, just happens organically, is a kind of iconography, a set of visual cues that people can recognize and see. I mean, I'm old enough so that the uh, the picture from Kent State is still emblazoned in my mind. Mm-hmm. Most people uh, your age remember the photo or the video from Tiananmen Square. And, and it did seem, and I know in some of your coverage too, as though we're starting to see moments that look a little bit like that, maybe not iconic at that level, but that iconography yeah. that begins to say we're in the middle of a protest movement. Yeah, I mean, there have been several of those photos that came out of Ferguson um, and the one this weekend that we uh, that I wrote about in my article and that I think a lot of people have commented on was uh, Corey Long, who is a, a young man from Charlottesville who's an elder care worker. And he's sort of facing down this angry crowd of white supremacists waving Confederate flags at him. And he's holding what looks like a flamethrower. And the reporter who found him and interviewed him said he had picked up this can of spray paint that somebody had thrown. And he was trying to, you know, fend off these guys who have guns and sticks and sort of picks up his lighter and makes this thing into an impromptu flamethrower. And the thing that's striking to me in that picture is he's sort of standing between this little older white man and another young black man and this crowd that's sort of surging in from the the left side of the picture. And when you find out that this guy is an elder care worker as his day job, it's it's that much more sort of poignant to like – you get this ongoing narrative of there's violence on both sides and it's all just a bunch of sort of meatheads fighting in the street. And in that moment, you realize that it's not violence on both sides. It's when you're doing that kind of community self-defense, you're actually taking care of other people. Um, uh, Mark, maybe last question for this segment, but there's, I think as you look at any protest movement, there are tipping points. And sometimes the tipping points are hard to see, but uh, it, it seems to me to be a tipping point whenever you can really see uh, a group that was formerly not in any way radicalized, not in any way accustomed to resistance, suddenly starting to join the resistance. Uh, the analog that comes to mind, uh, my mind being old as I am, is Mothers Against the Draft. You know, suddenly you, ha- you had people who were not long-haired, pot-smoking, easily categorized uh, Part, part of the late 60s protest movement. But, you know, mothers from small towns in Iowa who suddenly realized that their sons could very easily be dragged into a war that seemed to have no concrete objective. Um, suddenly, protest became a much more mainstream thing. Do you feel as though we're at that point yet, Mark? Well, I mean, I'm always, I'm, you know, I, I think we've all learned to, to be careful about, about positing turning points when it comes to things involving Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do think that there are moments, um, and, and, you know, there's a kind of, of uh, 
back and forth where where the different sides actually imitate each other. I mean, Jerry Falwell Sr. was very conscious about sort of taking on uh, the, the 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 way uh, Martin Luther King and the, the civil rights movement operated after being very critical of it at the time. Um, in some ways, I think what what the left is doing now uh, is um, embracing Tea Party tactics. Uh, that is the idea of mobilization with a political end. And I think I think some lessons were learned about Occupy Wall Street and its kind of um, uh, you know, lack of a political agenda, at least related to electoral politics, um, and comes out of the out of the Sanders thing. So, you, you know, I do think that there is some way in which, as a as a president, uh, Donald Trump seems to have crossed the line with a lot of people here. I mean, who's going to sign up for another advisory council? Um, and and uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, but um, but I'm I'm not betting the house on it. <laughs> all right. Uh, on that note, uh, first of all, Mark will be allowed to keep his house. Uh, Sarah Jaffe, uh, terrific, wonderful guest. Be sure that you read her coverage in a number of different publications. Uh, I think we found her most recently in The New Republic. Freelance journalist, Nation Institute fellow, author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, the co-host of Belabored. Mark Silk, director of the Leonard Greenberg Policy for Center for the Study of Religion in Public Life, a professor of religion in public life at Trinity College. We will be back. We're going to talk a little bit more about certain members of what you might call the arts and humanities elite are reacting. Or to put it another way, when you lose Lionel Richie, can you ever get America back? Hold fast or we'll all be gone. Resist, brother, resist. We got a devil for a president. We've been seeing a lot of coverage of the charities moving their events scheduled for Mar-a-Lago, but what about the events that have been added to the calendar? As a public service, I'd like to share some of them. The Hatred, Vitriol, and Anti-Semitic Views Society will have its annual Winter Carnival at Mar-a-Lago December 9th. On February 11th, 2018, the Association to Stop Treating Narcissistic Personality as a Psychiatric Disorder will come to Mar-a-Lago for a three-day event, and the Brotherhood of White Ex-Baseball Players has scheduled its celebrity roast of Kurt Schilling, emceed by Scott Bayo for March 2nd, 2018. If you'd like to get your event on the Mar-a-Lago calendar, call the main numbers and ask for Special Functions Coordinator Billy Bush. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is out on the roof trying to get an eclipse tan. Part of Bill Curry was played by Lionel Richie. On tomorrow's show, when the sun is back, we'll air our salute to that huge ball of incandescent gas. We're still talking about the sun. And now, back to Colin. All right. You will, you know uh, those cancellations, not the things that you just heard, the additions, but the cancellations from Mar-a-Lago are kind of, I think, part uh, of a trend that begins to sort of form a little bit of a chain, all right? You've got things like that that often involve people who are elites, either through wealth or connections or whatever. Uh, you've got the members of the President's uh, Committee on the Arts and the Humanities uh, announcing their resignation on mass on Friday. Uh, and you've got, and there, there are other things that we can talk about as we go along here. And you've got, you know, maybe not most notably, but very notably, uh, the first 
fissure between a sitting president of the United States and his first lady and the the Kennedy Center honors, which are, if you love arts and culture, kind of a big deal. I mean, they're a big deal. They're a lot of fun to watch on television. Uh, and they've been going for 40 years. Uh, and something went deeply wrong <laughs> this time. So joining us to uh, explain what, what's happened and what it means, Peter Marks, chief theater critic for The Washington Post. Peter, welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. Pleasure to talk to you. So, there might have been some other years in the past where honorees were uncomfortable with, say, the George W. Bush administration and uh, Guantanamo holding people without charges, stuff like that. Um, but it didn't really put the kibosh on, on the whole thing. It didn't uh, it didn't come to quite the, the head that it's come now. What's happening this time? What's making it different? Uh, well, two words, Donald Trump. Uh, and, <laughs> I thought it and, might be him. <laughs> you know, it, uh, Colin, what's, what's changed is I think that the, um, the arts community in America basically is rejecting the idea of uh, Donald Trump as the head of state. I mean, that's really, there's, a, uh, there's such a revulsion that's happened and it's become so uh, uh, routinized uh, now that people don't feel much compunction or to, to even have to uh, shake his hand. So what you've got, you know, as opposed to when, you know, even going back to Ronald Reagan, when Isaac Stern and Arthur Miller chafed at the idea of, of shaking, of going to the White House uh, and being acknowledged by him, uh, there, was, uh, there was enough of a, of a sense of civility in the country and also uh, a sense of the, uh, the grandeur of the office that had to be respected uh, that, that nobody absolutely turned down the offer to go to the White House and, and be fitted. Uh, but now that's been erased. That's been washed away. And I dare say it's going to be very hard for it to be recovered. You know, so, and I think one of the differences, too, is I think it's one thing for Barbara Streisand to say, well, maybe I don't want to uh, be honored uh, uh, by, uh, at least in connection with mm-hmm. the administration of George W. Bush. And that's Barbara Streisand, and she makes her decision, and, and she does or she doesn't, and things go on. What seems to be different here is the volatility and unpredictability of this situation. I think it has a little bit of its wellsprings and other events, the famous White House Correspondents' Dinner, where both President Obama and Seth Meyers kind of dismantle Donald Trump right. Uh, right in front of him. And, and maybe also, and I, I don't know what you as a theater critic make of this, but the the, the cast of Hamilton speaking to, to Mike Pence from the stage, mm-hmm. you know, in the early stages of this particular story, yes. there's kind of a sense maybe that you walk into an arts event and you're in the Trump administration, you really don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's true. And and I should say, I've been covering the uh, the honors uh, for 15 years on and off, so I have some sense of how this all uh, the, 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 these these things all pl- uh, come into play. And yes, uh, theater has had a visceral and emotional response to the Trump administration, and it has not been uh, shy about expressing its feelings uh, for better and worse. I mean, it has not. In terms of the theater that is so that has sort of uh, uh, sprung forward in the early uh, months of the administration, it hasn't been particularly distinguished, uh, and and certainly the kinds of things that uh, the Hamilton cast did uh, by reading a statement the night that uh, Vice President Pence, then Vice President Elect Pence, uh, attended, uh, was controversial and not just among people who didn't uh, 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 agree with the action. 
but even among people who, who, who you know, who felt, you know, who wondered about the decorum of, of doing that, should actors do anything more than, you know, give their performance? Um, is that their is that their responsibility, and not to speak up uh, after the event that way? So it so it's got. Uh, these things become very complex, but I think they all are grounded in an emotional response to this administration. And 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 I think also, I you know, we can't discount social media and the uh, and what that has done in terms of created blocks of people uh, with whom celebrities and actors in particular have uh, instant uh, uh, conversations. They're very conscious of how that plays out in that format, and they respond in kind. That's that no doubt has something to do with uh, the way things are playing out this year. So, Peter, in the world's, uh, uh, world of awards, you know, there's this thing uh, kind of humorously called the EGOT, the uh, Emmy, <laughs> Grammy, Oscar, Tony. But right. the Kennedy Center Honors, they're almost another level up from all this, yeah. partly because there's like five of them, right? I mean, right. Uh, maybe you can sort of say what that means in the world of arts and culture. Yeah, that's a really good point, Colin. Uh, they're, they're, they really are kind of the knighthoods. Uh, for the performing arts in this country. We have nothing quite like it. They're selected, interestingly enough, not by the president. The White House has absolutely nothing to do with who is honored. It's selected by a committee at the Kennedy Center. It's, con- it's in conversation with CBS, which, uh, which broadcasts it every year. They're, they are not small players in this. Uh, this committee uh, uh, often is interested not only in, especially nowadays, in the uh, in the contributions that these people have brought to the arts, but also how well those contributions play out for a television audience. Because in the very beginning of the awards, it was much more high culture that was represented in the in the uh, honors. People like George Balanchine in the uh, in the ballet world, a lot of opera and playwrights, and now it has really. Um, migrated to uh, pop culture, and that's partially the influence of ratings and television. But they're but they're not selected by the president. In fact, he's a bit player, an important bit player, and a very symbolic one. The most famous, probably, image every year is of those five honorees sitting in the presidential box at the Kennedy Center Opera House with the president and the vice president and the, and the first lady. Excuse me. Uh, amid them. That's the kind of, you know, that's the image, that's the symbolism of government uh, recognizing the power of the arts. And that's been wiped away. Um, also, I, I, one thing I'm wondering, Peter, you probably know more about this than any other journalist. Um, when were these nominees selected? Is it possible that they were selected at a time when the Kennedy Center and CBS was imagining, like a lot of people, that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president? Mm. No, no, it's much. <laughs> this happens. I mean, it depends on the year, certainly. But this year, I think the uh, the uh, the selections were coming down to the wire, Colin, and not just. Uh, uh, these were not. These are probably very long lists of people that they had to go through before they found five people who were willing to come because the, with the potential of of uh, meeting Trump and doing this in this highly charged political year. If you'll notice, you know the selection is does not include, which usually it does, almost uh, and, and regularly a famous actor mm. of some uh, uh, you know importance, Oscar winners, Tony winners. Emmy winners. There's no actor this year. I dare say it's because they couldn't find an actor who would, was willing to be kind of that anchor uh, honoree. Well, so, but, but Peter, uh, the, not, I mean, the, not to say that these aren't distinguished people in their own right, each and every one of them, but there are exclusions that make you understand that this was there was a lot of 
a lot of uh, discussion that was down to the wire. And in fact, they announced the uh, the honoree six weeks after they usually do. So, Peter, we've only got about a minute and a half left here, but but the nominees are Carmen de la Vallade, de Gloria Estefan, LL Cool J, Lionel Richie, and Norman Lear, who grew up a few miles from where I'm sitting right now, mm. who's one of the biggest liberal troublemakers of all time. <laughs> right, so right. How, how was he the right person not to light a fuse right here? Well, that's it. And he, he did, because up front, I think he made it clear to the uh, honors that he was not going to uh, uh, go to the White House, which is one of the elements that are sort of required of honorees over that weekend. And when he did that, it really set off the chain of events that made it possible for the others, like Carmen de Lavalade saying she wouldn't go, and then Lionel Richie saying he may not go. So it, it was a, a snowball that started at the top of the hill that, that, that Lear pushed off the, uh, the mountain. Peter Marks, uh, Chief Theater Critic for The Washington Post. So great to talk to you. You've been uh, wonderfully informative. Thanks, Colin. All right. We're going to take a little break. We're not going to take a little break. We're going to go. What am I saying? I want, the, I want the show to keep going. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back during here and now. No, we're not. We're going to leave. We've had a lot of fun here today. We've had great guests. Thanks very much to Betsy Kaplan, Kion Wolf, the whole crew here. We'll be back tomorrow with our salute to the sun, which I'm told will be back. Clinking in his glass, he sends his little pieces of paper on there. He's got his empty my pockets and we It's not fate, it's just circumstance. I don't fool myself with romance. I just live phone number to phone number, dusting them against my thighs and the mark of my pockets, which whisper history incessantly, asking me, where were you? Carrying, bearing weight, but I, I love this city, this state, this country is too large, and who's ever in charge of there? Better take the elevator down and put more than change in our cup, or else we. We now bring you live coverage of the Sun's post-eclipse press conference. Do you still have confidence in the moon after this eclipse? I like the moon. The moon is a friend of mine, but the moon came on very late, very, very late. I was already the sun for billions of years, and then you get the moon. And now the fake news is going to say the moon eclipsed me. Now let's stick to the facts. The sun is creating a record number of jobs. We have huge levels of enthusiasm for the sun, okay? I am the most perfect plasmosphere in the universe, and that is all I have to say at this time. 